Hello, we are the Guerra family. We have been with WCPC virtually since early 2020 and started attending in person last summer. The question for today is, what is one way the church has helped you know who God is? I believe in God and I feel God all around. And the Bible is his word. And in my case, it is a difficult text to read. It needs context, it needs interpretation, and discussion. And church is the place where all of that happens, where we can go and find answers and deepen our relationship with him. It provides us a community and an extended family where we can share our faith. And now a reading from God's word. Ephesians 1, 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And welcome to WCBC. I'm Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here. I join Mary in welcoming you. And uh, wherever you are, Wilson and Pramita, thank you. Uh, Wilson and Pramita and their uh, two lovely children actually joined our family last week. So it's wonderful to have them here. Um, this is what the letter reads. I will read it. The Board of Governors of the Augusta National Golf Club respectfully request the honor of your presence at the 2023 Masters Tournament to be held at Augusta, Georgia, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th of April. Sincerely, Fred Ridley, Chairman, please RSVP. And so only the world's best 80 golfers receive this invitation. This year, though, something really peculiar happened. Professional golfer Scott Stallings, who's currently ranked 54th in the world, had not had the opportunity to play in the Masters since 2014. After nine long years, he qualified, so he's eagerly awaiting his invitation. He said he would go to the mailbox like five times a day to check it. He thought maybe his wife had hidden it to give it to him as a Christmas present. Christmas came and went. Nothing. And then he received a DM, a direct message. This is what it reads. Hi, Scott. My name is Scott Stallings as well, and I'm from Georgia. I received a FedEx today from the Masters inviting me to play in the Masters tournament. I am 100% sure this is not for me. I play, but wow, nowhere near your level. 
It's a very nice package, complete with everything needed to attend. I think we have some confusion because of our names, our wife's names, and our geographical location. I'm more than happy to send this passage, uh, package to you. So same name, same geography, both with wives named Jennifer. This story ends beautifully. Uh, the real estate agent, Scott Stallings, mailed the invitation to professional golfer, Scott Stallings, and professional golfer, Scott Stallings, gave real estate agent Scott Stallings tickets to the Masters, which are the hardest tickets to get in sports, and invited he and his wife Jennifer out for dinner when they get there. So Scott and Jennifer Stallings, meet Scott and Jennifer Stallings. Your table for four is ready right this way. Uh, It's a classic and even hilarious case of mistaken identity, right? So this letter to the young church in Ephesus arrives in your mailbox, It's addressed to God's holy people. And then you hear in verses 1 through 5, faithful in Christ, chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, adopted as children of God. And most of us in this room, maybe we're conditioned by Sunday school class answers. So even though it has a a bushy tail and collects nuts for the winter and sounds like a squirrel, it's Jesus, right? So in that moment, uh, Jesus has accomplished all these things for us and we believe it. But many of us still We hear these words and it feels like a classic, maybe even hilarious case of mistaken identity. I am certainly not holy. I'm not that faithful. I don't feel chosen. I'm definitely not blameless. I assuredly don't deserve to be adopted as a child of God. But let me suggest that this letter is intended for you and fits in your mailbox. We're in this series entitled, Dear Church, it's seven introductions to seven letters to seven churches over seven weeks. And as I mentioned church, do you hear that? That's that whirring noise machine in your mind that said something like this. Come on, dude. Are you serious? Church is marginally useful at best. Some good vibes each week, some inspiration each week. But a deep relational commitment to church, we've got soccer, we've got farmer's markets, we've got our weekends. And last week, I talked a bit about how the church might be more prominent in our lives. And uh, suffice it to say, this week, if you want to go back, you can listen to the podcast or watch the video. But in this very letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, a couple chapters later, um, Paul says of Jesus, Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. So we're all invited in these seven weeks to contemplate our connection to the local church. And I said last week that I have three desires for this series for you, three desires for our church, and they're these. First, that we would be a church that believes the gospel. And we talked about that last week. We'll talk about it again next week. Second, we'll be a church that practices the life-giving rhythms of the Christian faith, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And then today, that we would be a church that knows who God is, and especially today we're looking at God as loving Father. And here's the big idea this morning. If you forget everything else, here's the big idea. God is loving Father, and in Christ you are an adopted child. God is a loving Father, and in Christ you are an adopted child. And even as I say that, I know there's that worrying noise machine in your mind again because some of you are hearing 
these words and you're asking, but why is adoption connected to things like chosen in verse 4 and predestined in uh, verse 5? And last week, uh, the letter to the church in Rome talked about being elected. And, And let me say, if you're not Christian, if you're exploring church, and we say every week, we are delighted you're here. And I've met with some of you and received some of your emails. And we hope you'll continue to explore Christianity in our midst but you can check out for a couple of minutes if you would like to. You don't have to listen the next couple of minutes because there's a sense in which there's this intramural dialogue going on and, and you'll hear things in the church like, well, do you believe in predestination and election? And people say, well, no, I don't believe in that. Which is funny because the words show up all over Scripture. So a better way of contending with them is to ask the question, uh, what do they mean? How do we think about them? It sounds like we're peddling privilege, doesn't it? God chooses some people and not other people. And, and I don't want to shy away from the rich theology and you're smart and wise people. Uh, so I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And in fact, um, I kind of wrote what I think is a biblical framework with these eight interlocking ideas. And I've got 40 copies up front. So if you're interested in reading more there, you can. But suffice it to say, here are these ideas that are interwoven together as we think about these doctrines. One, God is all good, all powerful, and all loving. Second idea, uh, God is not contingent as a being, so God does whatever God pleases, right? Third idea, if God elected to do everything as you think God should, then you would be God and God would have to answer to you, right? Fourth idea, anything having to do with time, like past, present, and future, is necessarily anthropomorphic. There's a $500 word. It just simply means we're attributing human characteristics to God to better understand God because God's not bound by space or time. So with God, there is no past or present or future. So foreknowledge, choosing something, these are are necessary accommodations so that we can better understand. Fifth of eight interlocking ideas Our understanding of salvation today is is awkwardly dualistic, meaning it's usually about heaven and hell, and if you're into philosophy, we have Plato to thank for that, but salvation is sort of seen as getting into heaven rather than a rescue from death to life, a rescue in this life for this life which will blossom into an abundant life. And so we think of the word predestined more like destination, where are we going, rather than destiny? What are we called to do and to be? Which leads me to the sixth interlocking idea. We should understand then that when language of election and choosing shows up in Scripture, it's almost always about responsibility, not privilege. We are chosen for the responsibility of loving our neighbors in Christ. We are elected to the responsibility of serving our friends and coworkers in Christ. As, as a non-aside aside, um, politics in America, all the shenanigans of a couple weeks ago in the House of Representatives, politics in their current form, I think, are an anti-example of biblical election. Because most people assume that they are elected to a privileged governing and ruling class that they're not elected to serve, which might show up in stump speeches and on campaign trails, but rarely in office. Seven, those elected to serve are not called good and right and blameless because we are good and right and blameless. 
as St. Augustine put it, called saints are not called because they are holy. Rather, they are made holy because they are called. And then eighthly, and lastly, and if you want to learn more, come get this after the service. If you are present today in this room, in a church that loves Jesus and preaches the gospel, then you should assume, yes, indeed, I am called by God to love others. I am chosen for the responsibility of bearing God's name in the world. I am elected to serve my friends and neighbors and coworkers. And the otherworldly and the unbelievable resource for doing this really well is knowing God as a loving father and through Christ, knowing yourself as an adopted child. So I want to look at each through this passage. Firstly, um, we're using the introductions to these letters because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And in Paul's introductions, they just keep showing up the main things over and over and over again. And God as Father shows up right here in verse 2 and then again in verse 3. And there's this intimacy connected to God as Father. In fact, the letter to the Ephesians, if you want to read the whole letter, you could do it this afternoon in 12 to 15 minutes. The letter to the Ephesians is not firstly a theological treatise or an ethics manual. It's mostly a prayer. And prayer is a conversation, a conversation, an intimate conversation with a loving Father. So have you ever thought about the possibility of being able to call God Father? In fact, the most well-known statement we have in Christian faith is probably the Lord's Prayer. We pray it after communion, and we'll start it today with our Father. And when I hear people pray, many of us start with the words, Father. Yet every time we do so, we might miss one of the most radical teachings of Jesus because there is no account in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is no account in all extra-biblical Jewish literature of addressing God in the first person, as Father. God is mentioned as Father, but never in an intimate, direct address. The first rabbi to call God Father? Jesus. And in fact, every prayer we have of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, except for one, he starts by calling God Father. But you know what? We don't just call God Father, but God initiates towards us as Father. God is not some deadbeat, distant dad. God the Father is actually the source of every blessing we enjoy, the initiative God takes. In fact, if you could look at every single subject of every main verb in this passage, it's God the Father. Verse 3, God blesses us. Verse 4, chooses us. Verse 4 again, destines us as his children. Verse 6, bestows us with grace. Verse 8, lavishes his grace. Verse 10, 9 and 10, gives us purpose. Verse 11, accomplishes all things according to his will. Reminds me of the bumper sticker, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. It's somehow true for every single one of us. (laughs) Yet many of us struggle to embrace God as Father, or more pointedly, to be embraced by God, our Father. If you had a loving, accepting, attuned dad, then okay, maybe we're good. But for some of us, if you had an unloving, distant, detached, maybe even abusive father, this is an arduous, 
painful work to receive God as loving father. And I would go so far as to say, if loving parent is better for you, I think that's warranted. Jesus talked about God as a mother hen gathering her chicks. Yet as best we're able, embracing God as loving father can be life-altering to us because in the first century context, the father was often uh, the, the one with the power and the resources, yet was very distant to the children. And remember, it was a polygamous culture, so the dad was very much detached. But as Jesus refers to God as Father, we get also not just the power and the resources, but this affectionate, nurturing, generous dad. I have three daughters, and my daughters know they have immediate direct access to me. If they call me and I don't pick up the phone and they call me again, that's my cue that they really need to talk to me and I will drop what I'm doing. Some of you will have your pastoral appointment interrupted because my three daughters have access to their dad. We also, I think, um, struggle to embrace God as Father for another reason. And your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe some of them in the room, maybe most of you, maybe all of you, if we're honest at times, Uh, live in some doubt because culturally we are Freud's followers. And what that means is there's this nagging assumption that God is just a figment of our imagination, this sort of great big parent in the sky, the dad that we never had, that we just create. But if we sit rationally, even emotionally in that understanding, in that assumption, I think you'll realize that what it does is it takes an ocean of meaning in this life, surrounding things like identity and purpose and justice and hope. It takes that ocean of meaning and it crams us into a little bitty thimble because we didn't invent God. We discovered God. We didn't create God. God created us and adopted us as children. So the big idea, again, is that God is our loving Father and in Christ, you are God's adopted child. I borrow that word in Christ from verse 1, which suggests that all of these gifts bestowed to us by God the Father seem to pass through Christ the Son. In many respects, our big brother. Did you see it in verse 5? We are adopted into the arms of God the loving Father through Jesus Christ. You could almost think about Jesus as this big brother who's being adopted out of an orphanage and he says wait 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 not without my little brother not without my little sister and i recognize in verse five that we're adopted to sonship and you need to know it's used in this context because in the ancient near east daughters had no rights sons had all the rights so yes you're adopted as a daughter yes you're adopted as a son but why do we need big brother jesus to do this for us Well, um, as Mary went to Martin Luther King Jr. on his birthday uh, to pray some of his prayers, I would quote him in one of his sermons found in the book Strength to Love. This is what he says. He says, Christianity affirms that at the heart of reality is a heart, a loving father who works through history for the salvation of his children. Man cannot save himself, for man is not the measure of all things, and humanity is not God. Bound by the chains of his own sin and finiteness, man needs a Savior. We cannot be rescued by our own self. 
We need to be rescued. And sin, that word that keeps showing up in the church because the church keeps asserting that our deepest problem is actually we divorced God in our own self-reliance. When we said, I'm doing just fine all by myself, we broke up the family. And ever since, we have been striving to find acceptance and approval and affirmation and belonging. And in our own efforts to re-family ourselves, what we end up doing is creating tribes, us versus them. We create in-groups and out-groups. I learned how to do this by studying cereal boxes when I was a seven-year-old. When I grew up in my family, we usually ate mueslicks or fruit and fiber, but sometimes we got the good stuff. <laughs> Tricks and cookie crisp and fruity pebbles and Captain Crunch, and I would sit at the table eating my cereal, studying the cereal box, and I would recognize, but silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Cookie crooks, you can't have the cookie crisp. Barney, fruity pebbles are for me, Fred. The soggies, remember them? They can't have the Captain Crunch. So as a seven-year-old, I couldn't imagine a world where the silly rabbit and the cookie crooks and Barney and the Soggies could sit at my table and eat my cereal with me because they were in the out group and I was in the in group. I belong only by excluding you by class or race or nation or in middle school at the table you sit, at, sit in the cafeteria or in politics or even in church. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't do that. They do that. <laughs> See? Henry Nouwen, my, my favorite Catholic priest, and everyone should have a favorite Catholic priest, in, in the book Cry of the Beloved, this is what he writes. He says, Beneath much human assertiveness, competitiveness, and rivalry, Beneath much self-confidence and even arrogance, there is often a very insecure heart, much less sure of itself than outward behavior would lead one to believe. There are so many voices out there, voices that are loud, full of promises, and very seductive. These voices say, go out and prove that you are worth something. They are always there and always they reach into those inner places where I question my own goodness and doubt my self-worth. They suggest that I'm not going to be loved without proving to myself and others that I'm worth being loved. And they keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain acceptance. They deny loudly that love is a totally free gift. In the tireless tirade of proving I am worth something is exhausting. And this is what Jesus came to secure for us. God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that promises to you and to me that we are worthy because in Christ you are an adopted, precious, and beautiful child of God. So what hinders you from experiencing this love? Well, in conclusion, I come back to the letter in your mailbox, which I don't think is a case of mistaken identity. I think it's intended for you, yet instead of taking it at face value, sometimes we mistake identities. We mistake identities from all sorts of other people and places 
voices in our lives. So if you're with us this morning and you're a teenager, the voices that say you're not beautiful enough, you're not smart enough, you're not athletic enough, you're not the right size or shape, it often feels like the cool kids are in the big circle and you're on the outside looking in. Or with your parents, you're not just disappointing, but a disappointment. They don't understand who you are or feel that you'll never quite, up, quite measure up to their vision and version of who they want you to be. Or if you're here as a 20-something, maybe you're stuck in the grind of, of earning your spurs, of proving your worth, of establishing your competency, of building your resume, and you're never quite sure what your boss thinks of your performance. Or maybe you already feel like you're in a dead-end career and you got into massive student debt preparing for it. Or you're in your 30-somethings and you haven't found the one and it's starting to crush you. Or you thought you found the one and the marriage is, is pulling apart at the seams. Or you're in the valley of diapers and it's so exhausting you can't keep up with the number of strollers and car seats and cribs you need just to keep your kids safe let alone get them into college, assuming you make enough money to pay for college. Or you're in your 40s and 50s, and life loses a little bit of its romantic luster, doesn't it? Is this it? I haven't saved enough for retirement. I don't love my job as much as I used to, so I don't really want to be working, but I have to. My kids don't need me as much. That's good, but I'm not sure they want me around. Or maybe you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, beyond, and your body's unraveling at the seams, and you would be able to enjoy life, but you just look old and feel old, you think. Folks cast you aside. Your opinion doesn't really matter because you don't know what TikTok is. You're feeling outdated and underappreciated. A friend of mine who's not Christian, she's a, a scientific journalist. She's been published in the New Yorker. She writes for Wired magazine. We were in a faith and science group together, and I conclude with her words, but we were writing back and forth about, about God, and this is what she said. She said, for my part, I realized that my wish for God, insofar as I have one, would not be a wish for meaning, but a wish for love. I find that aspect of God, the knowledge of being always deeply loved and understood compassionately, even in one's failings, profoundly appealing. Not least because God's love would be constant and eternal, unlike fragile human love, which is so vulnerable and lost so easily through heartbreak or death. Well, there is a love that transcends death. There is a relationship that can never be taken away from you. God is your heavenly father. And his voice through Christ says, you are my precious child. You're my favorite. Let's pray. God, we're reminded as we come to this table, uh, the extent that uh, you took to to bring us back, to restore us to family. Uh, Jesus, as big brother, we admire and respect you for sure, but we also recognize how much we need you to usher us back into relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be our confidant and our comforter and our guide even now as we 
come to this table together to uh, eat up and drink in your immense love for us. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit we pray. Amen.